Our second scripture reading is taken from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 9, verses 28 to 36. Now about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly they saw two men, Moses and Elijah, talking to him. They appeared in glory and were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions were weighed down with sleep, but since they had stayed awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Just as they were leaving, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were terrified as they entered the cloud. Then from the cloud came a voice that said, This is my son, my chosen, listen to him. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent, and in those days told no one any of the things they had seen. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable to you, for you are our rock and salvation. Amen. Frozen. Frozen at the sight before them. They don't dare blink. Are they awake or are they dreaming? Struggling to comprehend the brilliance radiating off their master, they are slack-jawed, wide-eyed. Jesus, once alone, is now surrounded by the impossible. Is that Moses? And that can't be Elijah. What is happening? Close your eyes and imagine with me. Climb this mountain and let's follow Jesus. Hours before, exhausted from the steep hike, Peter and his friends, James and John, are following the rabbi up yet another mountain, seeking respite away from the crowds. Jesus is picky about where he prays, and they continue stumbling along, hoping the next corner they turn on the mountain will be the perfect place. Eventually, the master finds the ideal rock to settle on, and they drop down nearby, bone-weary and worn out. The sun is about to set and darkness approaches, but Jesus is on his knees, his hands outstretched, his body rigid, prayers leaving his mouth silently. They no longer exist to him as he speaks to his father. Few words had been exchanged as they climbed that mountain together. Jesus had been saying some really strange things to them in the last few days, and they don't know what to make of it. They are confused, wanting to please Jesus, but unable to understand what to make of it. He comes, he's come to save them from the Roman Empire, right? 
and the suffering that they have known for too long. Why is he talking about death? Soon they will be in control and he will be king and the Romans will be out. For they long for deliverance and liberation. Who do you say that I am? He asked them just days before. And so the disciples throw out names that they've heard from the crowd. Well, John the Baptist. And others say Elijah. And still others, the one, one of the ancient prophets that has arisen. But Jesus asked them, but who do you say I am? And Peter Peter answers in a moment of insight. Perhaps the spirit has come over him. You are the Messiah of God. Jesus affirms him, then quickly orders them not to tell anyone anything yet, saying, the son of man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and scribes, and be killed and on the third day be raised. If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. And so their minds, the disciples' minds, have been stuck on these words ever since they left the other nine disciples below the mountain. And so over rocks and around trees, their minds try to puzzle out Jesus' words. He can't mean what he said. And what's this business about a cross? The 12 will protect him at all costs, of course. And so when they reach the top, they can't help but doze off mentally and physically drained. And so at that mountaintop, they do attempt prayer, but their exhaustion wins out. To escape and sleep will help them for a while. But suddenly, a light flashes so bright, they can see it from behind their eyelids. Adrenaline rushing, exhaustion gone, they stand frozen before the Messiah. And before them, Jesus changes. Jesus is transfigured, his body glowing, radiating with the glory of God, his clothing shimmering white, Transformed before them, no words can capture what they are expressing adequately. But God is here. Did you see it with me? I love putting myself into scripture. This is one of the most remarkable and awe-inducing scenes in the Gospels, perhaps only second to the resurrection. Across the centuries, Humans have attempted to capture this in various forms. Countless artists have tried to render this awesome moment in paintings and on cathedral domes around the world. Jesus floating in the sky, brilliant light illuminating him. Moses and Elijah flank him on either side, bowing down before him. And below, where the world is still in chaos are the darker tones highlighting the chaos of humankind. We attempt through hymns and anthems to capture the words this ethereal moment portrays. We try to capture the scene with our imaginations, but the transfiguration of Christ is mysterious. 
It is awesome, confusing, it is troubling. We see it, but something more is happening that remains unknown to us. And so it does reveal much, but it mystifies and bewilders us. So up the mountain Jesus climbs, but descending, he is changed, charged, and reaffirmed that the road ahead of him is the right road. And so today ends the season of Epiphany. On Wednesday, we begin the season of Lent with Ash Wednesday. And so this Sunday, celebrating the transfiguration of the Lord serves as the bridge between the two, a transition from Jesus' public ministry to his passion and the road ahead to the cross. He has done what he must on earth, and now he must descend into the darkness in order to save it. He sets his face fully on Jerusalem and the cross. His road doesn't end at the top of that mountain with the dazzling, dazzling glory of God. That will come later, even more so, after the tomb is broken open with resurrection life. But we're not there yet. For a moment, he does dazzle in glory, but then he turns and he makes the decision to go back down into the chaos and death of the world. Now, the transfiguration appears in all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and a possible allusion to it in the first chapter of John. But it's here that scripture invites us to see Christ fully claim his identity as Messiah. We see the prophets of old, Moses representing the law, and Elijah representing the prophets of old, affirm Christ and the path before him. And of course, God. God makes God's appearance in the cloud, again reaffirming that this is God's son and the chosen one, and they need to listen to him. It's a sight to behold. While these ancient heroes of faith, Moses and Elijah, joined Jesus and Matthew in Mark's gospels, we have no indication as to what was discussed in those gospels. We can only guess, but Luke is explicit. Luke tells us what they are talking about. In scripture it says, they appeared in glory and were speaking of his, Jesus' departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. In other words, these Old Testament heroes, I'd like to think, are giving Jesus a divine pep talk, sharing their wisdom, telling Jesus that all will be okay and he's on the right track. They are affirming that the road ahead is the right road, as terrible and difficult though it may be. Jesus always appears so purposeful and confident. It's sometimes easy to forget that while he is fully divine, he's also fully human. And with our humanity, as we know perfectly well, comes fear and anxiety and doubt. And I have no doubt that Jesus, even though he was divine, was terrified of what lay ahead. And so in this moment, just before Christ's passion begins, God gifts Jesus with a miracle of his own, transfiguring him with a glory that can only come from God, naming that aloud again, 
that he is God's son, the chosen one. And in this gift from God, God reminds Jesus that God is with him and that God's authority and power rests with him. We are given this gift of witnessing God's transformation of Christ into the Savior that he is called to be, a gift that in turn transforms us. But Moses and Elijah aren't just there to pump Jesus up and make sure he's ready. Their appearance and connection with Christ speaks volumes to us, serving as evidence that Christ has come in fulfillment of Israel's laws and prophecies. This is what the Jewish people have been waiting for generations upon generations. This is what all of God's people in time need desperately. Christ did not come to supersede what Moses and Elijah and all the laws and the prophets in the Old Testament did. He comes as the long-awaited Messiah who fulfills the covenant of old by bringing a new covenant. And so this meeting of the three signifies that God's plan is coming to fruition after generations and thousands of years of waiting. What is old has never been forgotten, for God never forgets. Everything has been building up to this moment. God's kingdom will come, a new creation will spring forth. And it is through Christ this will take place. And so it is now, in this time, on this mountain, that God's time in Christ has arrived. And the disciples and we as readers see God's plan unfolding before our eyes. And so as those three converge, we should remember echoes of those that have led up to this moment, those who first established God's covenant, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Moses and Elijah, and all the women and men who carried and sustained the hope of God's chosen one before us. But what of this departure, this word that Moses and Elijah speak of in their conversation? What did Peter, James, and John make of it? The NRSV translation, which is in your pew Bibles before you, this is the scripture we read from. But in this instance, I believe it does us a disservice by rendering this word as departure. That word doesn't do much for our ears, or at least it didn't for me initially. Yet it is, in fact, the same word for exodus. The word used for Moses and the Israelites' departure from Egypt and Pharaoh's bondage. So it might be better read as they appeared in glory and were speaking of Jesus' exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. And so when we hear this word, our ears and the disciples' ears definitely should have pricked right up. Because exodus is not a word that we use in our everyday language. And so, yes, it should hearken us back to the moment in Moses and his people's history of that journey of liberation and the struggle for freedom. The connections with Exodus and with Elijah reminds us that God will deliver God's people from slavery as often as God must do it. Through Christ, 
God is delivering us once and for all. And so like Moses and the Exodus, Jesus sees the journey ahead, the Exodus that he must make, the descent that will lead to his betrayal, arrest, torture, humiliation, and finally execution. It's on that mountain that Jesus needs to see and hear what God and the prophets of old affirm for him. Yet unlike Moses, he must make this exodus alone. He is not fleeing slavery and bondage as the Israelites did. Instead, he is choosing it, surrendering his life, knowing that ultimately God's power is no match for the pain and death ahead. He chooses the cross intentionally. He chooses to leave the mountaintop of glory and descend into the valley of death, knowing what is ahead. Jesus' death will enact such an event as Moses' exodus from Egypt, but on a cosmic, world-changing level. Scholar N.T. Wright writes, In the first exodus, Moses led the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt and home to the promised land. In the new exodus, Jesus will lead all God's people out of slavery, of sin and death, and home to their promised inheritance, the new creation in which the whole world will be redeemed. But today, right now, on that mountaintop, that is not where redemption will take place. But it will be on a very different hill, with a cross of death atop it. And that's where Christ's eyes are trained now. But for all the disciples have seen, they still don't get it. For they are not on the other side of resurrection as we are. And so Peter's seeking to respond in some way, for Peter's always trying so hard. He blurts out the first thing that comes to mind. Let's stay here, and I'll build tents for everyone. Jesus doesn't respond. God does. And so a cloud overshadows them. God's presence comes before them, terrifying them. This is my son, my chosen. Listen to him. In other words, you aren't listening to him. Open your ears, God says. All that is missing, writes theologian Lori Brant Hale, is the cosmic hand reaching down to give Peter a good, you are missing the point, slap upside the head. Peter constantly out of reach of understanding, not unlike the rest of us, wants to stay put on the mountain and bask in the glory that he is witnessing. And do we really blame him? But this is not where Christ is called to. Christ's transfiguration is just his preparation for the chaos that he is about to enter into. Glory will not ultimately be found there, but in the valley of death. And so without a word, they descend from the mountaintop, God's command ringing in their ears to listen to him. 
Without Christ's descent and return to the world, the power of the transfiguration is lost. And we, just like Jesus, we aren't meant to stay on the mountaintops where we have encountered God. These heightened experiences, they prepare us to go into the valley of chaos and death, to practice faith in the world around us. And so as we prepare our journey, our descent into Lent, as Jesus enters the stark wilderness, we too have faith that we will emerge transformed, trusting that Christ has already paved the way for us. Amen.